Hi, this is Daniel James, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R each Tuesday evening. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Oh, good evening. And welcome to episode 0000122 of The Mission. My name is Daniel James, broadcasting to you from Radio City Docklands, which is on the Wurundjeri people's country of the Kulin Nation. And I pay my respects to their elders past and present. And I remind us all that this land always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Now, um, another great show for you coming up this evening. Uh, we try and give you value for money here at Triple R, especially if you're a subscriber. So uh, in that spirit, coming up shortly, we'll be joined by author Claire G. Coleman. She'll join us to talk about her new book, Lies, Damned Lies. It's her first work of nonfiction, and like all Claire's work, it is interesting and provocative. So looking forward to talking to Claire about all that. And speaking of interesting and provocative, in the second half of the show, we'll be joined by journalist and director Alan Clark. He's the director of Barrowville Murders, which will be screening on SBS shortly. We'll give you details about that uh, throughout the interview. It's about the horrible story of three children murdered in Barrowville in the uh, early 1990s and the cock up by the police, the systemic racism that followed the investigation and the prejudice that actually prejudiced, prejudiced, prejudiced the investigation. So um, it's going to be um, a fairly heavy discussion, so just giving you forewarning before all that. Now, uh, speaking of heavy, don't we just live in the craziest times? Um, I don't want to talk too much about the events of today except to make a few short observations. Events like today just don't happen by accident. Just like we saw with the capital riots in the US, these things actually build up over time. And here, it has happened through segments of the media and through some of our so-called political leaders playing politics with the pandemic. It brews discontent and harbours misinformation. And when misinformation meets entitlement, well, then you have a recipe for disaster. So let's just hope that we don't see too much damage done to the fabric of this city we love before this thing is through. But perhaps a pause for thought for legit union members and tradies. We understand you have a genuine beef with how things have turned out. Just ask anyone in the music and arts industry about being shut down for prolonged periods of time. But also understand if you continue on with this action, like we saw today, you're actually emboldening fascists, anti-vaxxers and white supremacists. So, rightly, you are all about choice. Well, from here on in, the choice is indeed yours. So what can the rest of us do while all this hate and vitriol unfolds before us? It's easy to feel like we're losing control and that things outside our control are impacting us, which they are during a pandemic. I guess there's not really much to say about it all except to urge everyone to focus on the things that you actually can control. And at the end of the day, those things are what you think, what you say, and what you do. And Triple R being the station that it is, um, we're here for you to be yourself and hopefully aid in our collective self-care as a community in these tumultuous times. This station will always be here for you. 
As always, the best way to get in contact with me is via my Twitter handle at Mr. T.T. James. This is The Mission on Triple R 102.7 FM. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. You're listening to The Mission. Uh, my name is Daniel. And to tonight's first guest, Claire G. Collin is a Noongar woman whose family have belonged to the south coast of Western Australia since long before history started being recorded. Uh, she traditionally writes fiction, essays and poetry while mostly travelling around the continent, now known as Australia, born in Perth, away from her ancestral country. She lived most of, her, most of her life here in Victoria and most of that in Victoria. She is a fantastic novelist. She, her first novelist, novel, Terranalius, was critically acclaimed and was shortlisted, amongst others, for the 2018 Stella Prize. And her second novel, uh, The Old Lie, asked us to remind ourselves of the lies told in the writing of history. Her new novel, which is not really a novel, it's actually a work of non-fiction. Her first work of non-fiction is called Lies, Damn Lies, and it's her first full work of non-fiction and is available in all good bookstores. And I'm very pleased to say that Claire is on the line now from us, from Alice Springs to speak to us. Claire, welcome back to The Mission. It's good to speak to you. Always good to have you on the show, Claire. Um, your, your new book, Lies, Damn Lies, a personal exploration of the impact of colonisation, uh, is indeed your first work of non-fiction, framed through your own personal experience and in-depth research. Um, what drove you to write this book and add this book to the, our collective story? Well, since writing Terranullius, I've been subjected to a lot of intelligent questions and a lot of really stupid questions about the history of Australia and about colonisation. And I've done a lot of research and I've written a lot of kind of short works and non-fiction on the topic. And I've never been kind of, um, I've never been finished with that idea, I guess. It's the, um, the silly questions have been unstoppable and relentless. So I thought it would be a clever idea to put the answers to some of those stupid questions in a book so that people can read them and, and not have to think about them. And, and also people can, um, people who get asked those stupid questions can perhaps use my book as, their, as a starting point for their research and how to answer them. One thing, one thing I like about the concept behind the book is that you're, you're playing to your strengths, right? You're a, you're a, you're a great writer um, like many of us in this field, you do get asked a lot of questions about about things. Some of them, like you said, very intelligent questions. Some of them um, are based from a place of ignorance, which is not necessarily that person's fault. So what I like is that you've, if you've provided us with this gift, a kind of a how-to guide as to how to address some of these issues. Um, what I thought I'd do with this um, interview, Claire, is just flick through the book and go through some of the, the chapter titles and um, you and I can have a conversation from there. Oh. So let me let me start with Chapter 14. Um, it's entitled Australian History is Fake News. Yeah, that's a that, that one. That one, I'm, I'm sure, is going to make me unpopular. Like that concept. <laughs> um, but if, but if you think about it, um, the, there are certain there are many foundational kind of moments in Australian history that we from which our history has been established. 
which if you look at them kind of with a clear head and open mind, don't seem to have kind of any bearing with any sort of reality. Of course, the classic is um, talking about Cook. Yes. And and which is a lie that keeps coming up repeatedly in in my book. But this um, but also um the the kind of the, the books also that that chapter was kind of written in response to and um kind of started a long address that I did for an archivist conference. Right. Um where where I essentially said that unless um people are selective in choosing what is allowed to enter into the history because people always are selective and we had this mythology that um, history um, and history and historiography and archiving um, is unbiased, which is obviously garbage because everyone is biased and therefore everyone who writes anything to the history is, is writing biased history. There's no other way around it. So it was kind of the idea was to explain, try and explain to people who are involved in, in history writing and in archives, um, trying to find a way to explain to them that um, history is biased and fake news has already gotten into the, into the history, so therefore it will again. I think um, a really interesting example of that bias that you've mentioned, Claire, uh, has kind of arisen in the last few days, actually, and it relates to the so-called founding father of uh, uh, Australian rules football, Tom Tom Wills, who um, has been revealed um, on the balance of probabilities, was involved in several massacres in Queensland, as a reprisal for um, the massacre of members of, of his family. And we've seen that the writing of his story has totally neglected the possibility that that may have happened and it's focused on his role in um, inventing Australian rules football and his role in coaching the first um, Aboriginal team. But we, 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 Aboriginal cricket team, we see that sort of telling of history time and time and time again. And it's actually historians that are actually complicit in a lot of this um, fake news, as you put it. Well, yeah, they are. But I don't, okay, not all, sometimes when historians are complicit or involved or directly produce fake history, um, there's kind of, malicious intent. But I think most of the time, like most bad that is done in our world, now, there's a lot of bad things done, but I think most of the time they're done with the best intentions. They're done through foolish mistakes or misunderstanding, not through evil. So I think for the most part, although I think it'd be reasonable to say that um, most historians throughout history have made mistakes, mm. I don't think, I think for the most part, none of it's malicious. Yeah, I think I think there's I think that's that's genuinely true, isn't it? I think um, uh, a lot of it has to do with the way uh, historians were schooled and 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 the education, the degrees, and the context in which they were brought up through the ranks to become um, historians. Um, and it's also but, the, everyone everyone writes from their personal context. That's and everyone speaks and writes from their point of view, and that's um, I suppose in a way that's that's why I've written a bit of my book as a personal understanding of it because. I'm acknowledging that we are all only able to kind of write our own point of view. Mm, yeah, absolutely. And I think that bias speaks to um, the institutions and, and, and the education systems absolutely. that we're, we're brought up with here here in Australia. Um, let me take you to um, another chapter. Now this, the title of this chapter could have been named um, after um, in relation to Hillsong Church. It's entitled, It's Not Your Rock. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Talk us, talk us through that one. 
Well, that one's that one. Um, it's it's, it's kind of one of the I think one of the more obvious chapters. Yeah. Um, the idea of that one is that um, it comes from this this um, debate that was happening over the closure of um, of Uluru, the big red rock, as some people call it, um, and the closure of the climb. Now, there's been there's um, as I point out in the chapter, and I've said this a million times, I've said it in interviews, I think I wrote a, a short essay on it as well. Um, the, there's an important thing that non-Indigenous people forget when they're considering whether or not the um, the um, Uluru um, summit climb should be closed. The important thing they forget is it's got nothing to do with them. Yeah. It's like... It's like um, no... <coughs> no... Nobody but the traditional owners of that rock, who are also the owners on paper, and let's not forget this, they were handed it back in a, as a land rights claim. So they don't only, don't only own it kind of in the spiritual sense, but they actually also own it um, like white fell away. It's been handed back to them. Yeah. And therefore, um, everyone who like, gives an opinion on it, like Pauline Hansen, for example, she gave her opinion, um, they, they forget that, that her opinion is absolutely worthless. Yeah, and it's one of those cases where you wonder what makes people think they've got a right to an opinion, and and really, the only reason that non-indigenous people would think they have a right to, um, to the question, and I'm thinking about the question, um, do I have the right to climb? Should I be allowed to climb the rock? The only reason they think that 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 question has got anything to do with them can only come down to racism. It's the only explanation why they will yeah. consider that their opinion is worth anything. Well, it was like it was like you or I deciding to climb on the roof of someone's house. Um, yeah, if that's, that if that's um, our right. Um, yeah. If you want to put it as simple as that, and and, and you're absolutely right. You know, um, when it comes down when it comes down to it, the decision to ignore the actual traditional owners of Uluru, um, their wishes and um, their, their 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 hopes and and summit the rock. Is inherently a racist act. That's the only way you can actually frame it, isn't it? It could be. I mean, it could be argued that people who climb the rock without knowing are not committing a racist act. That could be argued. But since the signs went up saying, "Please don't big climb signs, the rock," eh? yeah. they were big sign. You can't miss them. And but since those signs went up, um, anyone who makes a decision to climb the rock is has made a racist decision, whether or not they're a racist person. I mean, we really have to kind of think of it that way. You can have racist decisions without the person being overtly racist. That that is possible. Um, we need to accept that. Like sometimes, um, again, sometimes people do the wrong thing because they're um, kind of not aware or because they um, don't think of the um, think of all the implications. But the decision itself was racist. It's twenty-two past seven. You're listening to the mission on Triple R one hundred two point seven FM. My name is Daniel. We're speaking with author Clee G. Coleman, who has a new book out entitled "Lies, Damn Lies." A personal exploration of the impact of colonisation, and we're just riffing on some of the uh, the chapter titles here with with Claire. Uh, let's go to uh, chapter five, Claire, and um, this is not in relation to uh, Kim Kardashian's uh, Met Gala outfit. This one is um, entitled uh, "Not Quite Black Enough." Now, this is something that um, you're probably uh, and me and, and and a lot of people this far south are actually trolled trolled on. What did what did Absolutely. you want to say in this chapter? Well, I, I, I honestly mean I can't actually remember exactly what I wrote in that chapter, but that doesn't really matter because it's a it's something that comes up a lot. And I've, um, I did an interview 
with Jacob Boehm for the Saturday paper, which we talked along those these, those lines as well. And the issue is that um, um, because of some of most of us, actually, let's face it, most Aboriginal people these days are of mixed race. The majority, I'd say, the majority of us are of mixed race. Probably not a not commonly known fact, but that that would I'd say that's true. And where I come from in Noongar country, that is absolutely true. There's um. Last I heard, um, historians and anthropologists had declared there are no um, full blood nunga. Yeah, full stop. There are none, um, and that's 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 a legacy of colonisation. We um, um, there was a, a genocidal policy of um, only basically in Western Australia, um, the government could choose whether or not an Aboriginal person could marry, and they never gave that uh, marriage permit to someone to marry, um, for someone to not like basically they tried to stop. Aboriginal people marrying um, and more other Aboriginal people, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. And once there was um, half, what they call half-caste people, half-caste people were to be um, made extinct by um, in, by um, forced intermarriage with um, um, whiter people than themselves. Yeah. Most of us are, are of mixed race. And um, and the, the fact that the, 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 um, the thing is that when we, when we do well, we're – um, it's because we're white. But when we fuck up, it's because we're black. Yeah. Um, <laughs> that's, that's the summary, really. Yeah. Um, and when we want to access Aboriginal services, um, we're too white, mixed race. And if we want to, but if they want to put us down, we're black, all of a sudden we're black. And it's, it's like, basically, they've, um, our mixed race status has been weaponized to cause us further harm than racism has already done. And um, we, people don't think of this. So it, even asking someone how much, how Aboriginal are they, is itself a racist fact. It doesn't, and it doesn't really matter because, as we know, you and I know, and probably most of your listeners know, um, Aboriginality is not down to our skin colour. It's down to whether, and whether or not we are Aboriginal and part of our culture and proud of who we are. Exactly. I'm, it, I'm actually It was powerful. about skin colour. <laughs> I'm actually pale blue that, underneath this t-shirt, so you're, you're not that you're not that pale. <laughs> well, well, it's, it's but, uh, interesting, Claire. It's interesting, Claire, because um, you know very similar policies were carried out here in Victoria. We had the yeah. Half Caste Act of uh, I think it was um, the early early 20th century, which specifically um, and and deliberately separated half. half I'm using all this in inverted commas. Um, half castes. Um, Aboriginal people from being in contact with their full-blooded um, uncles, aunties, mothers and fathers in an attempt mm-hmm. to basically let the full-bloods die out and then basically breed the half-castes out into the community so the race yes. was no more. This is not being hyperbolic. This is true. And to swear my head off, the, um, one of the joke ways I've heard it is, um, fuck us white. Yeah. Or, yeah. or the way it's, well, fuck me white. And that's yep. like, <laughs> and that, that's that's crude, but that's that's sometimes what the policy was. Yeah, it would have been interesting if they actually called the act that, but um, missed opportunity there. <laughs> um, look, one, one more, one more chapter before I ask you one last question. Um, chapter sure. twenty-three: Indigenous wis- wisdom and climate change. Uh yeah, um, that was a good one. Um, let's face it. Um, no, in, indigenous peoples around the world don't didn't cause climate change. Climate change is an industrial um, industrial thing. It's caused by by modern 
um, fossil fuel-based industries and modern fossil fuel-based industries and um, and capitalism and colonization are all kind of sides of the same coin. Yeah. Um, in, in colonization was part of um, of capital of capitalism. And Australia's the people who first came up with the idea of colonizing Australia were actually doing it for the money. Let's face it. And slay and um some convicts were bought here to be slaves. And it was also it was always all about money and colonization and capitalism arose together. And in industry and capitalism arose together. And in reality, um well, let's, Aboriginal people survived climate change before. We've um, survived culture intact for um, more than 60,000 years, which means we've been through a couple of ice ages. Um, and we probably survive, survive um, climate change again. Um, but we aren't the cause of it yeah. at all. Yeah. We, 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 um, Australia has, is actually the, um, I think it's the seventh or sixth or seventh most climate polluting country on earth. Yeah, I think we're I think we're I think we're nearly at the top of the list uh, in terms of uh, per capita. Per capita, sixth or seventh, and yeah. the other the other all the rest of the top ten are um, oil producing nations, like yeah. um, places like um, Saudi Arabia who produce a lot of oil. Um, and that, when you think about that, people say that Australia's climate impact is tiny because our population is tiny. But um, is, is it really fair to expect Australia to be able to continue on our merry way destroying the planet um, and say that because we've got a low population, we should have a higher standard of living than everyone else? I don't think, that, I don't think that's right. So I think, and I think if Australia wants to fight climate change, the best way to do it is to ask our original people how to fight it, I think. Because, well, we, um, saw, we saw an awakening of um, interest in Indigenous, um, you know, fire um, treatment of, of of the land, um, uh, back yeah. burning and 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 uh, yeah, cultural absolutely. burning um, during the last fire, the last major fire season we had. Uh, there is that too. We we survive. We survive fires that would wipe out civilization. Um, and the other I mean, the, my favourite concept I always say is, yeah, climate change is an apocalypse. Well, what another one? It's like not like we haven't seen it before, and we'll. I think well, I hope we'll survive this one too. Yeah, uh, time, time, time will tell. Um, look, one last question before um, I'll let you go back and uh, look at the magnificent stars that uh, occur up night, um, up in that world um, at night. Um, you've written this book; it's a provocative book. Um, I, I feel like it's a book that is going to gain momentum in terms of being a piece of work that is uh, talked about. Um, I asked you the other week uh, for a thing we did with the Wheeler Centre, what sort of toll it has taken on you to write this book. And you told me that um, the toll really was yet to come in that uh, the, the toll yeah. of writing the book will come to the reaction of it once it actually becomes better known amongst certain certain circles. Um, what, are you, what are you expecting? Well, I'm, I'm expecting um, – well, every, every time uh, an Aboriginal person has written something that – um, that um, kind of dissects or deconstructs um, what how uh, white Australia sees itself. Um, we get attacked um, every time. Actually, every time anyone does, but really, but average people cop it worse. So, um, what I'm expecting is that um, the not only get internet trolling is of course going to happen. Um, that's mm-hmm. a few more people read my book, but also expect trolling type behaviour from 
um, from the right wing media because um, I've copped I've cop that before. Not like not from this book, but from I copped an attack from um, from a right wing magazine um, based merely on an interview that I did for the ABC. Um, when I'd only been um, like into uh, like kind of professional life about three or four months, I copped a, a major attack. Um, and so I suspect that certain individuals, one of whom I actually name and I, um, I name drop in the book as someone who I've had a problem with before. Um, I think certain individuals will will come for me. I don't think I don't expect any physical danger, but I, I suspect they're going to try and shut me up. I don't think it's going. To, I don't think they're going to be able to shut me up because no, no one's going to be able to shut me up. Yeah, I think <laughs> very much. I really do. But they're going to try and stop me. They're going to. They're going to try and um. And stop me from saying what has to be said, and um, of course, if I let them stop me, then um, then they've won. So I'm not going. I'm not going to let them win. I don't. I'm not going to let the colony win. So, well, Claire, uh, don't ever shut up. Um, you're welcome back on the show. Yeah, I, I don't doubt that at all. Um, <laughs> you're welcome back on the show anytime. Uh, Claire G. Coleman's new book is called Lies, Damn Lies, A Personal Exploration of the Impact of Colonisation. It is available in all good bookstores. And as always on this show, I encourage you to get it from an independent bookstore. Don't uh, give money to billionaires to ejaculate themselves in space. Um, Claire, thank you very much for your time. Um, good luck. Enjoy the night sky. And uh, we'll chat again I will. soon. Okay. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics, and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. Uh, so to tonight's um, second and uh, final guest. Um, now, just a just a pre-warning. This is a um, a uh, heavy topic of conversation. So if um, you're, uh, you know, not feeling on top of uh, the world at the moment, then it's unlikely that this conversation will make you feel um, any better. So um, just uh, just for a warning before before we kick off, um, when three Aboriginal children were murdered um, in the early 1990s, a small community was torn apart, but a long fight for justice also began. The Barrowville Murders investigates one of Australia's most prominent unsolved murder cases, the murder of three Aboriginal children between September 1990 and February 1991. 16-year-olds Colleen Walker-Craig and Clinton Speedy Durux and four-year-old Avalyn Greenup vanished from the same street over a period of uh, five months. Um, I'm actually trying to play a um a clip from the uh, the uh, show for you now, but it's not leading me. So I thought we'll probably just get on with um, speaking to um, our next guest. Uh, director Alan Clark is a Murrawai and Gumaroi man, and he, as a director, tracks the case um, from bare-faced disregard to public apology, then into investigations and countless stays in court. Uh, he's joining us tonight from um, a city you might have heard of called Paris, and I'm very pleased to say he's on the line with us now. Alan, welcome to the mission. Thank you so much for having me, Daniel. Um, uh, just before we kick off, uh, I've always admired you as a, as a journalist. Um, people, because of the nature of the show that I do here and some of the writing I do, um, uh, I claim that I'm a journalist. But when I say, I say, no, no, I'm not a journalist. I'm just a broadcaster. If you want to know what a real journalist looks like, 
go and have a look at Alan Clark. So let's just get that out the road straight away. That's <laughs> um, <laughs> very nice. <laughs> tell us about the events of uh, September 1990 to February 1991. Yeah, so in the small town of Barraville, which is up on the New South Wales sort of far north coast, um, on there is a little Aboriginal mission just next to the town. And during a, a number of months in the early 90s, his uh, three Aboriginal children, uh, Colleen, uh, Clinton and Evelyn, uh, all went missing from the same street uh, within the space of a few months. Um, and uh, later on, um, Evelyn and Clinton's bodies were found uh, murdered in the forest just next to the mission. And uh, Colleen Walker's clothes were found uh, in a river nearby. Her body's never been found. So that set in motion uh, kind of, a, I guess you'd say, a 30-year sort of journey to get justice for Colleen Clinton and Evelyn by their families because, uh, you know, from the get-go, uh, when the kids went missing in the first place, they went to the police, the local police, uh, who just were really dismissive, uh, really rude, and I would say, you know, with uh, heavy racial undertones, questioned mm. the families about whether or not, you know, their kids had actually been um, taken or whether they'd just gone walk about as if that's what black kids do. Um, and, you know, if you think about Colleen's mum, she was even questioned about whether she was the mother of Colleen because in the photo, Colleen has lighter skin than her mum. So uh, that from the beginning, I mean, it wasn't taken seriously. And then uh, as we know now, it would, uh, you know, it would lead to this 30-year kind of fight by the families to try and, uh, you know, get people to take them seriously. So like you said, the, the subsequent investigation, if you could actually call it that, was <clears throat> played with uh, prejudice and combined by systemic racism. Um, what did you discover about that element of the investigation when, when you were, um, you, know, you know, curating this story for us to, to find out about? Yeah, look, I knew from the beginning uh, what the families had been saying about uh, the racism they'd experienced in the early days. Um, oh, look, I knew that to be true because I'm, uh, you know, a black fellow from far western New South Wales from a very small town called Burke, a uh, big Aboriginal community, and my family uh, have experienced the same things. In fact, every Aboriginal family has experienced this uh, when it comes to the judicial system. Um, and so going in, I, I, I knew... Uh, that it was bad, but I guess as we, as I spent more time with with the families, and they started to talk more about kind of their treatment at the hands of the police in the early days. I mean, some of it was just jaw dropping and uh, absolutely shocking. You know, in the beginning, when they asked the police to kind of investigate these murders, they really just sort of sat on their hands, didn't do anything, and then later on, when they did start to investigate, they actually brought in people. Uh, who were investigating the families themselves. So wasting mm. critical time when they could have been out there trying to find this murderer, they actually had brought in, uh, you know, a, an officer who, a detective who was basically a, a from the family protection unit looking at uh, the families, uh, which the families didn't know at the time until later. They just thought the police were actually doing their job for once. And then later on it was just a kick in the guts to find out, well, actually, no, these police this whole time we're just looking at the families. It's it's completely outrageous. So there are moments like that where I just, uh, you know, uh, I get completely outraged and just uh, extremely upset. And it goes to 
I guess what we wanted to do with the film is actually put this out there and say this is the experience of black people at the hands of our uh, our authorities every single day. You need to bear witness to this. This is truth-telling. I mean, even as late as last year, the police were actually slammed for publicly releasing information about allegations of historical sexual assaults related to the town without even talking to the, the, the families of um, of uh, the three victims first. So it's, it's something that hasn't remedied um, in the subsequent years. Oh, look, you know, and this isn't just a sort of police, uh, you know, kind of that racism or, you know, institutionalised racism running through the police. It's also uh, kind of a cohort, really. It's the police, it's the media, it's the kind of wider public, uh, you know, uh, falsely assuming things. Um, and so you see this throughout the, the family's kind of fight in the film that uh, every time there was a major development or something was happening, the families didn't know about it until they heard it on the media. You know, that just mm. shows you kind of level of respect, I guess, at the time people had for these grieving families. Uh, it's, it's, it, w- it was really insidious. It is uh, 14 to 8. Uh, you're listening to The Mission. I'm speaking with uh, Alan Clark, the director of the Burrowville Murders, which will be screening on Sunday, the 26th of September on SBS and SBS On Demand. It'll be uh, premiering live at 8.30pm on, on Sunday. Uh, I guess there's a lot to be said about and a lot of commentary to be made um, here, I guess, Alan, on, on the on the media coverage or lack thereof or the, the bias within the media coverage in comparison to the type of coverage you would see in um, similar cases that we've seen about the place. Mm. Um, I think it's pretty fair to say that the coverage would have been dramatically different if these three kids were white. Uh, you look absolutely, and you know this is the I guess this is the hardest thing to do. Uh, you know, kind of when you're dealing with issues like this or putting them out there is having to actually compare murder victims, uh, particularly the the murders of children, uh, white and black. It's, it's a horrible it's, thought. It's, it's it is completely horrible that you have to kind of compare them. But you know the reality is is that yes, if Colin Clinton and Evelyn were were white, I have no doubt in my mind, and many people, including uh, the former detective Gary Jubilin, who was on the case for many years, uh, that this would have been uh, done and dusted by now. That there would have been someone behind bars. That the families would have got justice. But you know, it's not just kind of don't take our word for it. I mean, if you compare the media coverage in Australia to cases like uh, Daniel Morecambe, William Tyrrell, even the Beaumont children going back in time, I mean, these are household kind of names across Australia. People know about these cases, these horrific murders. Uh, or these are all children um, who are murdered. And, you know, they yet Colleen Clinton and Evelyn uh all go missing from the same street within a number of months. It is a potential serial killer, and yet uh, the rest of Australia turns a blind eye to it, and the media don't give it the coverage that it deserves. Um, And I think that there shows you exactly how, uh, you know, most of Australia or or even the media think that most of Australia uh, think that they're not going to be interested in this story. And that is uh, kind of, you know, that's a... That, that's just a terrible, terrible thing. I think, Which, uh, you know, but you're right. Like if, no doubt, if there were white children and they were living in a, in a, in a town or, a, you know, kind of in a city, people would know about them. It's sad. It's sad that we have to, to think like that, but it's, uh, it's a, you know, an absolute 
aspect of society that we need to, to talk about and an aspect of our media that we need to talk about. Mm. I guess all this adds up, Alan, to um, this all being very confronting viewing come Sunday night. Yeah, look, it, 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 look, it is confronting. Um, and the way I kind of put it is that this is, uh, you know, if we want to change the kind of systems uh, and our authorities and particularly change aspects of the judicial system, which was set up uh, initially, uh, you know, at Federation uh, without Aboriginal people in mind um, at all. We were excluded. We were pretty much animals at the time to, to the government. Um then, you know, we, we need to change the systems. And to do that, you need to see the reality of what uh, Aboriginal people live with every day. And Colleen Clinton and Evelyn's families are not only having to grieve uh, their, their, their children, um, and they're also having to live with this trauma of also feeling like they were ignored by, uh, by the people that are meant to protect them for years and also feeling like the rest of Australia doesn't really care about them. And so yeah. there, is a, there is multiple layers of, of trauma that they have to live with and I think it's only fair that, you know, people can sit through, say, an hour and a half and just experience a small, uh, you know, bit of that. And this – and I want to be clear because, I, I, you know, I don't – I, did, I, I don't set out to make things uh, to shock people, you know, mm, because there's sure. no value in that. This is all within context. So what you see has uh, has been a, on screen has been a, um, a, a collaborative process with the families about what they're comfortable about, what they would like to put out there. Um, and so what you're seeing is kind of the story told through but, you know, what they feel is important. And that is probably the most important thing about the film. And then at, uh, at the same time, you know, people might feel like, oh, my God, how have I missed this? Why, why do people feel like this? Where does it come from? And then we offer the context. So it's important that we go back in our, our history and, and explore why Australia is like this in 2021. Why... You know, why is there a narrative that Aboriginal people are more likely to be perpetrators of violence than victims of it? Um, and then, you know, so we explore that as well. So, yes, there are moments that will uh, that are gut-wrenching. Mm -hmm. uh, but then there are moments where I think people will also be inspired because, you know, it, it, it's, it's crazy to me the amount of strength and power that these families have to go through 30 years against a system that is completely, uh, you know, complicated uh, and, you know, and, and, and for them to set out to change that, especially being so sort of voiceless in the beginning. And then, they, you know, they did it. They, they, they did some extraordinary things. They amended the double jeopardy laws, which have been, you know, were imported here from England and were in yes. place since the 1500s. Uh, incredible achievement. Uh, not many people know about that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but if this was like, I, I feel like if it was a non-Indigenous person that had done that, people would know about it. Um, and yet they got that far to amend these laws and yet the High Court still said it's not enough. Um, and yeah. so, I mean, I think people will be angry. I think people will be upset. I think people will also be incredibly uh, moved by just the sheer strength that Colleen Clinton and Evelyn's families have. Now, this is a question I find myself asking a lot of people that come on this program, Alan, because uh, we now have story storytellers, we have poets, we have musicians, we have filmmakers, we have uh, academics, 
uh, and just everyday people on the show on a, on a weekly basis. And I think this is a particularly pertinent pertinent question to you. Um, what sort of toll did making this film take on you personally? Because a heavier subject matter you couldn't possibly imagine. Yeah, I mean, I and it's interesting because I get asked this a lot, and mm. I'm, particularly with, you know, there's much more conversation around mental health and self-care at the moment, which is fantastic. Um, look, I will say uh, I had been working for, you know, five or six years on the Mark Haynes case, which was a big, uh, which was the murder of a 17-year-old Aboriginal boy in Tamworth back in the 80s. And, you know, I, and with the culmination of that was this sort of, Australian story and a, a, a blood on the tracks for ABC podcast. And it was really big, but that took a massive toll. After that, I had to step away for yeah. a few years and I didn't, uh, I didn't really understand what was happening to me. But yeah, I did uh, experience like real, I, I was quite depressive and I'm not motivated. And, you know, I was going through a lot and then I sort of recognized a group called DART, which works with journalists um, and trauma sort of helped me identify it and and I was able to sort of build up some kind of self-care around that. And so when I came on board for Barrowville, it was the first kind of big project after that and I had already had pretty much a two-year break uh, from, from reporting and sort of not doing anything and I was doing lots of little writing things, that kind of thing. But And I felt okay to step into it. From the beginning, there was much more awareness around um, how do we uh, manage this trauma. So we had counsellors um, and we had support for the families and we talked about that in the follow-up care. And so all of that helped, all of that conversation in that when, you know, not to say that interviews weren't harrowing mm. because they were extremely harrowing and they took a couple of days uh, to, to do, sometimes uh, three or four, um, but Walking away from it, I, I felt a lot more confident because we'd built up kind of a, a strength and a bond amongst me and the families and we we're in constant communication talking about how we felt, which is really important. And I think, you know, that's, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm glad it's out and that people are having the response they're having and that they want to help the families. I think I, I, I've gotten much better at self-care, but the way I do it is, you know, I realized before I wasn't talking about it, I was pushing it away. I wasn't thinking, uh, you know, I was just like, this is, you know, you know, let's put this in the back of my mind. And it, and it all came to bite me on the ass after the mm. Mark Haynes investigation. So with Barraville, I felt a lot better because I was talking to a lot more people about how I was feeling on the daily and uh, talking with the families and, you know, and so, uh, yeah, I've come out of that a lot more uh, important. It's not to say there aren't moments where it's just all so all-consuming, the kind of distress at the situation and, you know, the, the frustration with uh, with the government and the authorities and, and the police um, because there, there are days I just get incredibly sad for the families because yeah. I just think, you know, all the high high highs they've had is just – the lows are the lowest of the lows, and I just think that is completely unfair. But yeah, it's, I think now I think it's talking about this this stuff a lot more openly, and and you know, and being listened to helps a lot. Well, thank you so much for um, you know helping those families tell tell their story, and um, I'm really glad to hear that you've got some strategies around some of this stuff. Um, so important that you take care of yourself when reporting on matters like this. Um, just one quick last question before I let you go. Um, are you letting pe many people um, on at the moment know that um, you're an Australian in Paris or are you just keeping that on the low down at the moment? 
No, no, no. I mean, it's just kind of funny because I, I feel like uh, my work is back in Australia, but I'm doing it remotely. But no, I moved to France actually after that Mark Haynes investigation I was talking to you about, and I just kind of needed, a, I guess, a, a fresh start. Um, my husband is French, so we were like, okay, let's move to France for a while. And I was coming back and forth between Australia. I came back, obviously, to film Barraville and, and do the work on that. But uh, I've been back here now with COVID, and it's a... Uh, it's like, uh, well, I, I don't know when I'll be home next, which is kind of distressing. But uh, watching what's happening in Australia at the moment, I don't know, maybe France is a better place to be. We, so. we live in crazy times, Alan. Um, enjoy the uh, the last two and a half minutes of uh, your morning in Paris. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, if you want to watch uh, the, the documentary, The Barrowville Murders premieres 830 p.m. Sunday, the 26th of September on SBS. And, of course, you can catch it on SBS On Demand. Thanks again, Alan. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.